reading from Second Chronicles. The Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Mayonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The witness of the patriarchs, the prophets, the kings, and the psalmists, their witness all together help us to lament. That is to cry out to the Lord for help in time of need. So we just heard about King Jehoshaphat. That's 873 to 849 B.C. About the day he held what was a unique liturgical service at the Jerusalem temple. On that day, it wasn't a priest, but it was the king who led the people in a prayer of lamentation and also intercession during a time of great crisis as the city was surrounded. He proclaimed a period of fasting, for the plight of the people seemed desperate. Their enemies were upon them. Or as we said, or as we heard, Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. There are many such occasions in the biblical times, and really many more since then. For the enemies of God's people are both numerous, my name is Legion, for we are many, and the enemies of God's people are powerful. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're going to take the whole witness of Scripture seriously. We'll admit that we are, as Christians, continually at war. We, children of God. But because we're at war, we, like those who came before us, sometimes feel simply overwhelmed, almost empty of hope. The psalm for today... I'd have you look open to it in the hymnal, but that didn't go as I planned. <laughs> Psalm 44, it was written for such times. Hopefully you remember some of it. There was that famous verse, though. This you've heard in many times, in very many places. You have given us as sheep to the slaughter and scattered us among the nations. You have bartered your people for a pittance and made no profit on the sale. Can you say those words to God? You have given us over like sheep to the slaughter, scattered us among the nations. You've sold us for pretty much nothing, made no profit on the sale. That's the prayer of a people or an individual and lament. It's really a helpful prayer. This psalm of 
you might say, despondency. Because the life of faith is not sustained, it's not a sustained, uninterrupted series of triumphs, of winning, of prosperity, of health. More often, more often our life is, our life in this world, even our life before God seems to be an unmitigated disaster. Have you ever caught yourself saying, well, what more could go wrong? How much worse could it get? And then it does. Yeah. What are you supposed to do in those times? Where are you to go? Who do you cry out to for help? Yeah, maybe it's unfortunate that we can't include all of, or we didn't include all of the psalms in the hymnal. I suppose that psalm is hard to pray in the context of Christian assembly, but it's given to us for that purpose. Maybe the next hymnal will include it. That's the kind of prayer that we pray. Lord, you have given us as sheep to the slaughter. You've sold us and not even made a profit. Our situation may be actually more likened to that of Job. We heard Job lamenting. But maybe you don't remember how the book began. He too had ever endeavored to be pleasing to God, the God of his fathers. At the beginning of the book, we learn that he is more steadfast, he's more moral, upright, than pretty much anyone else. He has held steadfast to the, the law of God. In that case, he really is the perfect embodiment of the sort of things that we expect of ourselves and of our children, of our congregation, that we read in all the wisdom literature, how to be a moral and upright person. Since you probably don't remember it, here's how it starts. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of all of them. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually." Of course, the setup is that in the next few verses, God allows Job to be afflicted. To be so afflicted that he loses his children, his home, his livestock, all of his possessions, even his health and well-being, all under the affliction of God by way of Satan himself. And so I think Job might have even prayed like the psalm today. He was undeservedly afflicted, and his sentiments are very much what we heard in the psalm. Really, shock 
surprise and even disappointment with God. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That sounds great. That's chapter 1. But you know that the book of Job keeps going and going and going. He's lamenting. He's complaining. And very much in the way of the psalm we heard today. Job's complaint could be summarized like the psalm did. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, a derision and scorn to those about us. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, a derision and scorn to those about us. Such is the prayer of those who, like Job, feel that overwhelming sense that despite everything that we've already recited about God's saving deeds in the past, all the great things he's done for us, and even remembering all of God's promises for the future, that right now, it seems as if God has simply forgotten, forgotten us. There are days when, if we are believers at all, we can only be described as men of little faith. But again, that's why the prayer, the psalm, started first with that which was handed over to us, the history of God's people, the tradition. It started this way, we have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us. Such an appeal to the lessons of history is, of course, standard in the Bible. For the biblical God is, first and last, the God of our fathers. Thus, the message of Genesis has to do with God's fidelity to Israel's patriarchs. The book of Exodus tells of Israel's redemption by that same patriarchal God. Other historical books of the Bible narrate God's continued faithfulness to his promises to an unfaithful people. Even in the prophetic works, they constantly look back to God's redemptive work through Israel's history as both a picture of and a prophecy of what he will do for his people in the future. A similar note is sounded strongly in the wisdom literature of the Bible, like some of the Psalms, but especially the book of Proverbs, for instance. In the book of Proverbs, as you read through it, it's forever appealing to the moral lessons of history. The complex system, if you like, of disciplines and standards that have been learned by experience and prescribed by the authority of our fathers and handed down through succeeding generations. That's what Job appeals to in Job 31, which you heard. It's also what the psalmist appealed to in Psalm 44. Tradition is the note on which our psalm begins. And then almost its entire first half being taken up with our review of our past experience, what God has done for us, for our people. But maybe that's not convincing. Because God is not only the God of the patriarchs of the past. We believe he's also our God, the same. And so the end of that first half goes like this. You are my king and my God, you who command victories for Jacob. But that's where the tone of the psalm changed. I tried to indicate that for you with a little pause. All those reassuring lessons of the past then are being put sternly to the test. 
but you have cast us off and put us to shame. You no longer march forth with our armies. You have turned us back from the foe, and our enemies plunder us at will. Now the laments begin. Lamenting sets the past actions of God against the future promises, all in light of our present experience. Yes, we know what God has done, and we know his promises of what he will do, but why is he not doing it now? That's the conflict of faith. We believe, we trust, but we lament because we do not see. We turn to our Lord and lament, crying out for what we know to be true, what has always been true, and what will be true, but in the moment does not seem to be true among us. Psalm 44, then, is a prayer. It could be a prayer of an individual or a people sorely tried concerning their faith. We need to hear about Job. We need to hear about the lament of Jehoshaphat. We need to hear of Moses interceding, really even lamenting about the whining of God's people. We need to hear these prayers because we are like them. Psalm 44 is the prayer of an individual or a people sorely tried concerning their faith. And were it not for such experiences of being abandoned by God, there would be no test for the important proposition, the most important proposition of all, that a just man, a righteous man, you might say a faithful person, lives by faith. Whatever the trial, and its forms are many, it's finally the voice of faith, albeit often little faith, that prevails, especially prevailed in the psalm. We pray to the Lord, those other men that our Lord describes of little faith, you might remember them, the disciples, those frightened disciples on the stormy lake. Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Rise up and do not cast us off forever. Arise and come to our help. Deliver us for the sake of your name. That's the kind of lamenting we're called to do as Christians. Not to trust in ourselves, not to trust in anything of this life. But like Job, sometimes God strips us of all that we have falsely placed our trust in so that we cry out to him and our trust is renewed in him. Of course, don't think you're alone in this kind of lamenting. Your fathers, mothers, and siblings in the wilderness, they pleaded to Moses and Aaron to intercede on their behalf before God. They thought God had forgotten them and had abandoned them to the wilderness forever. They even thought their challenges too tremendous and their salvation even unlikely. They cried out, and it's not even about saying necessarily the right words. Go read Job some more. Our fathers in the faith, mothers, siblings, they cried out often with ugly and even unfaithful words. Even when they were unfaithful, though, God is faithful. God did not reject them, and he heard their prayers. He heard them. He suffered with them. He suffered those words, and then saw them through every weight that he had laid upon them. And through every prophet and king, priest and worker, slave and maiden, up to and through the present, there's not a single Christian in the history of the world 
from Adam to the last Adam and to you on the last day that hasn't had the same crisis of faith. Not my will, but your will be done, O God. We learn from all of them how to cry out and lament, but not just complaining, but crying out in faith and for the sake of faith. There's a notable example of the use of this psalm, and it's one of the apostles. It's the Apostle Paul. He prayed this psalm, seeing in its lament a reflection of the sufferings in his soul because of his fidelity, faithfulness to Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now you know where it comes from. Psalm 44. But he didn't end there. Thankfully, Paul gives us the lasting, eternal answer to our laments. What do we do when our feet cannot find footing? When we think our future uncertain? Where do we go when we can't seem to find any hope or joy now. The answer for St. Paul is your answer too. No, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, confident, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.